The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled A is for Antibody in Multiple Myeloma, Practical Insights and Patient Voices Along the Therapeutic Journey. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HYJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everybody, to our first and early session uh, with the bravest of the brave here in Atlanta. Um, my name is Suzanne Lynch. I'm professor of medicine at Columbia University, and I'm here together with my friends and colleagues, Dr. Noah Biran, who's joining us from um, Hackensack University in New Jersey, and Dr. Ajay Noga, who is from Emory University in Atlanta, so he is a local. <laughs> this I would like to give you some introduction. Um, as we planned this event, we thought about the multiple approvals over the last two years that included monoclonal antibodies. And especially in the last two years, we observed many approvals that included CD38 antibodies such as daratumumab. Darat was approved in combination with VTD, velcitlidomide and DEX for newly diagnosed patients, transplant eligible, and in combination with Revlimid and, with Revlimid and dexamethasone for transplant ineligible patients. Also, daratumumab got approved as a subcutaneous injection and for relapse patients in combination with carfilzomib and with pomalidomide. We also have another CD38 antibody, isatuximab, which was approved for relapse multiple myeloma together with pomalidomide or with carfilzomib. And we are very happy to have a BCMA-targeted monoclonal antibody, Blenrap. And we both, we try, we all of us try today to shed some light. How is the best use of those multiple approvals in multiple myeloma? So as I mentioned, we have two CD38 monoclonal antibodies. We have daratumumab and we have isatuximab. Both target the myeloma cell directly via direct cytotoxicity, also antibody-dependent cytotoxicity and antibody-dependent phagocytosis. We know that DARA also depletes CD38 immunosuppressive regulatory T-cells and promotes T-cell expansion and activation. And we know that isatuximab also has immune modulatory function and inhibits the ectoenzyme activity of CD38. Blenrap, which is also called Belamef, it's a um, monoclonal antibody with, uh, conjugated with a toxin. Uh, Blenrap or Belamef binds to BCMA by binding to the BCMA um, receptor on the multiple myeloma cells. It um, introduces the toxic agent, the MMAF, into the multiple myeloma cells and disrupts the microtubule network. That leads to cell cycle arrest, apoptosis, and also simulates immune cells that secondarily come in and induce antibody-dependent cytotoxicity and also phagocytosis. We also have bispecific antibodies, and in principle, we have two types of bispecific antibodies. We have the bites, which are consist of parts of an anti-CD33 monoclonal antibody and an BCMA antibody, and you can see those parts are linked and they are able to engage T-cells and the multiple myeloma cells expressing BCMA. But we also have the dual-body technology in which parts of a half of an anti-CD33 monoclonal antibody and a BCMA monoclonal antibodies are combined to a full antibody and uh, engaging T-cells as well as myeloma cells. But despite those 
progress and um, development and newer therapeutic agents, we still have challenges in the treatment of multiple myeloma. And I think this is a very important study from Rafael Fonseca, who showed that in an assessment of over 20,000 patients not eligible for stem cell transplant, only 57% received one line of treatment. That means almost half of the patients didn't receive any treatment for relapses. Also, in terms of newly diagnosed patients uh, who are transplant eligible, 20% received only one line of treatment. Uh, that means they didn't receive any additional treatment after transplant. So this shows that patients really do not get the treatment we have available right now. So that's why we thought it's important that we discuss optimal treatments for our patients, including monoclonal antibodies. And I will talk about exploring the role of antibodies in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients who are transplant eligible and ineligible. Dr. Biran will talk about antibody platforms in relapse refractory multiple myeloma with a focus on early relapse. And Dr. Ajay Noga will talk about challenges and opportunities for using antibody technology in heavily pretreated patients. But throughout our discussions, you will also hear stories from patients and their experiences, which I think are very important. We also would like to thank our partner, Myeloma Crowd. Um, I think uh, it's always important to listen to our patients. And I'm happy to see Cindy here in the audience, who made it as a myeloma patient from New Jersey. Very brave. Welcome, Cindy. So with this, I would like to um, give you some insights into uh, the early treatment of multiple myeloma with monoclonal antibody. And I thought it would be the best to start with a case presentation. Um, I wanted to present you two cases from my practice, one patient, a transplant eligible patient, and another patient, a transplant ineligible patient. So Robert is a 60-year-old male patient with hypertension resulting in left ventricular hypertrophy, but no other comorbidities. He is diagnosed with active high-risk multiple myeloma based on the fact that he has several lytic lesions by PET-CT and he has a high infiltration of his bone marrow by plasma cells, 72%. He carries high-risk features with a translocation 12, 14, 16, and also a gain of Q1, more than four copies. So the question for the presentation will be, what is the potential role of CD38 antibodies, quadruplets for this transplant-eligible patient in his upfront treatment? And also, does his high-risk status make a difference? The other patient I would like to discuss is Bess, who is a 74-year-old patient with diabetes and neuropathy, pulmonary emphysema. She is diagnosed with active standard-risk multiple myeloma due to hypercalcemia, vertebral fractures and L3, lytic lesions by low-dose whole-body CT scan, and 50% plasma cells without high-risk cytogenetics. So the question is, what is the best approach for her? Should we use VRD, KRD, or Dararevlimidex in this older patient, not transplant eligible? And what is the use of monoclonal antibodies during COVID? And in order to discuss the best option for those two patients, I would like to give you a snapshot of the clinical trials that focus on newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients and um, monoclonal antibodies. And we have the Maya trial that combines daratumumab with Revlimid and Dex in a triplet for newly diagnosed transplant ineligible patients. The Alcyon trial is a quadruplet that combines Dara with Velcate, Melphalan, and Prednisone, also for transplant ineligible patients, more commonly used in Europe. We have the Griffin trial, which I think is a very important trial, and the Cassiopeia trial, 
both combined DARA with VRD or with VTD for transplant eligible patients. And I would like to draw your attention to the ongoing Perseus phase three trial. The ISACIA trial is a quadruplet that combines isatuximab with KRD, cafilzomib, brevlimid, and dexamethasone in newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients. But let's start with our quadruplets for newly diagnosed transplant eligible patients. And we just heard data from the Cassiopeia phase three trial. It will also be presented here at ASH. And that clinical trial was divided in two parts. The first part compared DARA VTD versus VTD, and it looked for uh, the effect during induction and consolidation and showed that patients who received DARA in addition to VTD during induction and consolidation had an improved response a deeper MID negativity and also prolonged progression-free survival. But I think what is also very interesting in part two, daratumumib was compared versus observation, and we saw quite interesting data. You can see here with a longer follow-up um, that daratumumib significantly increased the progression-free survival when added to VTD. In orange, VTD, and in blue, the outcome, the progression-free survival not reached. And you also see that the oval survival is different. The median oval survival is not reached, but what you see is that the hazard ratio really favors the addition of daratumumab to VTD. I mentioned already that there was a second randomization for the maintenance part. And in this maintenance part, daratumumab was compared versus observation. And you see that there was significantly higher or better progression-free survival than dara was given in the maintenance. But I think what is quite interesting and what was a surprise for us was when we look for the subgroup analysis, you can see here that at the end we had four groups. One group did not receive daratumumab at all, only VTD during induction consolidation and went on observation. Another group received dara during the induction, no maintenance. The third group received dara during induction and also during the maintenance. And then the fourth group received daratumumab only during the maintenance. What you appreciate here is that there's no significant difference in the progression-free survival when patients receive daratumumab at any point of their treatment. But they have a significant better progression-free survival when you compare that to patients without dara, suggesting that patients need dara at any point of their treatment, but not quite clear whether they need that through induction and also through maintenance. What was shown and what is expected that DARA um, induced um, better sustained MID negativity. You can see when DARA was added after two years, the MID negativity was 35% versus 18%. And also we can see that patients who achieved MID negativity had a much better outcome. You can see the sustained two-year MID, MID negativity was significantly better in um, prolongation of the progression-free survival. But we don't use that much uh, VTD in the United States. I would say our preferred um, treatment for patients newly diagnosed is VRD, Revlimid, Velcate, and DEX. And that's why in the Griffin trial, in a phase two clinical trial, VRD was combined with daratumumab to see whether this is better than VRD alone. And the data you can see here show that with the addition of daratumumab to RVD, there was an increase in the complete remission rate after two years of maintenance from 60% to over 80%, which I think is quite impressive. Also looking for the MRD negativity after two years, you see that the MRD negativity rate with a 1 million threshold increases from around 15% to 35%. 
Also, there may be negativity after 12 months was much higher in patients who received daratumumab in addition to Revlimid and Dex. You can see here, after 12 months, patients who received RVD had 2.9% of MID negativity, whereas patients who had, in addition, Dara, we had an MID negativity of almost 30%. Uh, looking for the PFS, there was an increased PFS for patients when DARA was added uh, with a very favorable hazard ratio. So what is the situation for our non-transplant non patients? So you can see the MCCN guidelines give quite a number of options, as you can also see here. So what are we doing for those patients who are not transplant eligible? And I think the Maya trial really gave us good data showing that also DARA is inducing very high and prolonged progression-free survivals and overall survivals in patients when daratumumab was added to Revlimid Index. And you can see here the five-year follow-up, the progression-free survival is not reached in the Dara Revlimid Index arm, whereas in the Revlimid Index arm, it's 34.4 months. Looking for the overall survival, you can see that the Maya trial also resulted in an increase, significant increase overall survival when DARA was added to Revlimid and DEX. <clears throat> In the Alcyon trial, the addition of daratumumab to Velcate, Melphalan and Prednisone also increased the overall survival significantly, leading to uh, approval by the FDA. So the question is, and I mentioned that already, remember our first patient had high-risk features. So the question is, should we add antibodies to overcome high-risk features? Well, we have some data from the Alcyon, Cassiopeia, and Maya trial, and you can see that in those trials, daratumumab was favorable for patients with high-risk cytogenetics. So my take-home message is that, yes, in high-risk patients, I would add daratumumab to the initial treatment. So what are the take-home messages for newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients? So I think what we learned for newly diagnosed transplant eligible patients is that Griffin indeed um, is, uh, showed very promising results when DARA was added to Revlimid, Valkyrie, and DEX. The Perseus trial is still ongoing. And the Cassiopeia trial when DARA was added to VTD is superior even when the time of daratumumab treatment was limited. For non-transplant eligible patients, I showed you that the Maya trial showed that there are relevant index for newly diagnosed patients. I think is a standard of care, but what we are still missing, and keep that in mind, we have no head-to-head -head comparison between DRD and RVD. So that's why right now for newly diagnosed patients, Revlimid Velcate Index is still an option. But let's go back to our patients um, again. Robert is a 60-year-old male patient. I mentioned already he has some cardiac uh, history, uh, prior history of hypertension that resulted also in left ventricular hypertrophy. Otherwise, he's relatively healthy. Um, he has high-risk multiple myeloma uh, based on multiple lytic lesions and abnormal cytogenetics. Um, the question is, what should be the best treatment for him and should we include uh, daratumumab? So I decided to treat him with daratumumab, Revlimid, Velcate, and Dex for several reasons. I think for this young patient, a quadrumab would be most appropriate, but I shied away to give him carfilzomib because that patient has hypertension and left ventricular hypertrophy in his um, prior history. So I think it would be best to give him daratumumab, Revlimid, Velcate, and Dex, followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. 
How would I treat Bess, our 74-year-old patient with diabetes, neuropathy, and also some uh, pulmonary emphysema who was diagnosed with standard risk multiple myeloma based on hypercalcemia, vertebral fractures in L3, lytic lesions um, in a low-dose whole-body CT scan, and also the fact that she has 50% plasma cells in her bone marrow. So the question was, should we treat her with VRD only, KRD, or daratumumab, Revlimid, and DEX? And I treated that patients with daratumumab, Revlimid, and DEX until disease progression. Uh, the reason was I would not treat that patients with Velcade uh, because she has pre-existing neuropathy. And um, I think uh, Velcade would be relatively contraindicated in this patient. Also, given, her, given the fact that she has some um, pulmonary emphysema, I would not favor Kafelzumab um, for her treatment. So, and with this, I would like to ask um, also my colleague, Ajay, what do you think? How would you treat the patient before I ask the patients, uh, our audience for the poll? I think what do you think? First patient is transplant eligible. Would you go with data from the Griffin trial, Daratumumab, RVD? Would you be more aggressive? I absolutely agree with you, uh, Suzanne. So, in the transplant eligible patients, we have clearly seen that RVD well, used to be the standard of care, and data plus RVD has become the new standard of care, at least in my opinion, in delivering those depths of responses that we have always anticipated or we always wished for. So the, he's 60 years old, minimal comorbidities. There is no doubt for me that I'd be using data plus RVD in this specific case. Coming to Beth in the transplant ineligible patient, absolutely agree with you that the Maya trial has shown the long-term follow-up that was presented at EHA and showing that six years later, the 60% of the patients are still alive in a transplant ineligible patient population. That's a big deal. And those results clearly allowed me to use data plus RD in, in Beth. So one question that I always struggle with is, you start using data plus RD, patients achieve a stinian complete response. Is there a need for continuing those double treatment or can we stop off one agent? That I make a decision by the patient basis, but I'd really love to hear your opinion as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, I think important, I think we both agree also on the transplant. I mean, that's an open question, but I think we have so far data that would suggest that transplant results in a better progression-free survival. Hohan said, you know, there's some benefit for um, for the oval survival. The other studies showed progression-free survival. Um, so I would favor in a younger patient transplant, to be very honest. Uh, continuation of treatment, um, that's a question, you know, with a DARA, with a Maya trial, especially given the fact that we see that patients who continue with daratumumab treatment might have an impaired response to COVID antibodies. So we really have to think about that do we want to stop at a certain point when patients are MID negative, for instance, um, and allow them to mount an antibody response to vaccinations? I think there are a lot of open questions we have to decide really based on the situation of the patient. Okay, and I think we are ready now for our video. Hello, I am Robert Hairston. I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma in December of 2019. And I must tell you, uh, upon hearing the diagnosis uh, from my oncologist, uh, I was stunned. It's not so much that it wasn't working, but it was the side effects. Uh, Revlimid 
uh, can take a toll on the body, as it did on mine. Uh, the fatigue, uh, the nausea uh, was unbearable. But I was uh, pleasantly uh, surprised when we went from that traditional regimen uh, to the Dara Tumamak, uh, which I'm under right now in terms of maintenance. Uh, it's a totally different ball game. It has allowed the quality of life uh, that I had before. Uh, I'm doing uh, most things that, uh, that I was doing before. Um, for instance, following this uh, uh, session that we're having, I'll be giving a guitar lesson to my granddaughter, uh, which, you know, is important in several ways. Uh, it shows that I'm able to utilize my dexterity, uh, that I'm able to use my mind, that I'm able to use my creativity, uh, that I can engage. So my Loma crowd and coaches can play a role in alleviating the fear that's associated with the lack of information uh, because I think the number one job of a coach is to provide that information um, to point in a direction that would allow a patient to become educated with regards to alternatives and um, the future. So I, th I would encourage a newly diagnosed patient, number one, to seek out a specialist in their area, and number two, um, contact healthtree.org for a coach. And with this, it's my pleasure to introduce today Dr. Noah Biran, exploring antibody therapy in relapse refractory multiple myeloma with a focus on early relapse. Dr. Biran, would you please go ahead and introduce your case? Hi, thank you so much, Dr. Lynch. Um, it's a pleasure to be here um, virtually, but still. And uh, with that, I'll start with the case uh, of a patient with relapsed myeloma. So this gentleman is the 76-year-old man, uh, revised ISS-1, free kappa myeloma, presented with a hemoglobin of 10 and diffuse lytic disease. His diagnostic bone marrow revealed 60 to 70% kappa-restricted plasma cells, BCL2 overexpressing CD20 negative. Congo red stain was negative without plasmoblastic forms. The flow showed 1% kappa-restricted plasma cells, and his fish was significant for a deletion of 13Q and a gain of chromosome 1Q21. The patient received induction, bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dex, three cycles followed by autologous stem cell transplants and lenalidomide maintenance. So he had a 15-month remission and um, it, his M-protein started to rise to a level of 0.5 gram per deciliter, meeting the definition of progression of disease. Additionally, he uh, was noted to have osteolytic FDG-avid disease uh, in the left rib and uh, his left posterior iliac crest. So his comorbidities include well-controlled hypertension. He had a stent one year prior to diagnosis. 
reflux, psoriasis, and he did experience some mild peripheral neuropathy related to the bortezomib. This gentleman does live alone. Uh, he's independent, but he requests infrequent visits uh, due to problems getting to and from your office. Okay, so we'll keep that case in mind and we'll start the presentation. And now we'll dive right into the new evidence regarding antibodies in the relapse setting in multiple myeloma. So we'll talk a little bit about principles of therapy in general for patients with relapse refractory myeloma. And we have to take many factors into account when choosing a regimen. Importantly, when did the relapse occur? Was it shortly after transplant? Was it while on therapy? How quick is the relapse occurring? Are the paraprotein slowly increasing or is it doubling in a, in a month or, you know, even in shorter? What prior therapies worked? We want to know what therapies the disease was sensitive to in the past as that may kind of affect your treatment decisions moving forward. Are there end organ symptoms? Is the patient symptomatic? Is the patient in renal failure? Also, what are the genetics of the disease? Is it a high-risk genetic? And it is important with each relapse to re-examine the genetics of the disease as the mutations can be acquired with each relapse. The other thing is looking at the patient. What is the patient's performance status, comorbidities? What side effects do you want to avoid? Have they had intolerance to a proteasome inhibitor? Do they have underlying neuropathy? Are they high risk for neuropathy? So all of these factors are taken into account together when making treatment decisions in the relapse setting. We're lucky that we have all these treatment options. So, also, so again, look at their comorbidities, their frailty, convenience of therapy. Are they able to travel for injections or do they want an all oral regimen? Maybe they rely on others for transportation to your office. So we want to know in general how quickly the relapse is occurring and um, to which therapies they were refractory. It is always better to use triplets compared to doublets in the relapse refractory setting as the disease is heterogeneous and you want to target all the different clones. And we know that in almost all settings, even in frail patients, triplets are more effective than doublets and at this point are fairly well tolerated. And these data are supported through from many different trials, which we'll go into shortly. In addition, we have some other principles. So patients who have progressed on proteasome inhibitors such as bortezomib or ixazomib, we can restore sensitivity uh, in, in specific situations with carfilzomib. Similarly, pomalidomide can restore response to lenalidomide resistance. So we want to use our more potent drugs earlier on in the relapse to achieve response in the more resistant diseases. Also, we can recycle medication. We can use therapies again when combined with novel partners. So we do see emergence of sensitivity to prior therapies on which patients have relapsed. So our goals in the early relapse setting, first and foremost, improve symptoms. We want to achieve a deep response because that translates into a long duration of response. We, in general, use our best therapies earlier because you don't know what's going to come later on as therapies are developing rather quickly. And you also want to target the multiple clones of myeloma to reduce resistance and improve durations of remissions. 
always consider clinical trials, even at earlier relapse, because patients have to be in very good um, condition and have excellent organ function and have slower relapse in most situations to qualify for a clinical trial. So it's always advantageous to save the FDA-approved therapies for later. So what are some of the antibodies in relapse refractory myeloma? We have um, data supporting the use of daratumumab with Castor and Pollux. We've established both intravenous and subcutaneous use of daratumumab in combination with IMIDs or proteasome inhibitors in early relapse. Our extended follow-up for the Pollux study showed a median PFS of not reached for DRD compared to 17.5 months for RD. Candor and Apollo look at daratumumab in combination with carfilzomib and pomalidomide, respectively, and we'll look at some of the long-term data for that. We've established the use of elotuzumab in combination with IMIDs, looking at the Eloquent trials, and our most novel uh, and newest approved monoclonal antibody against CD38 is isotuximab, and there's data supporting its use in combination with pomalidomide through the Icaria study and carfilzomib with the Ikema study. So let's look at some of the CD38-based triplets. So here is our updated data of the Pollock study, looking at the combination of DRD versus RD. And you can see that in the intent-to-treat population, the median PFS was 44.5 months versus 17.5 months in the RD arm. And this benefit in PFS with DRD compared to RD was upheld in patients who achieved the CR or better, and in patients who had prior lenalidomide, and significantly in patients who had one prior line of therapy. And if you look at those who achieved MRD negativity, the DARA RD arm, who were MRD negative, uh, have very long follow-up and a very long median PFS. Um, so MRD negativity predicted prolonged duration of response. And now we look at some of the pre-specified subgroup analysis in the Pollux trial, and you can see that the benefit was maintained across almost all subgroups. In the high-risk patients, um, we do see a lot less of a benefit. However, this subset of patients is difficult to treat with almost all treatment regimens. And we can see that the benefit of daratumumab may be less substantial in patients who have failed three prior lines of therapy. But with longer follow-up, we're seeing that that difference is less. So perhaps with longer follow-up, we will see more of a benefit uh, with the addition of DARA in the high risk, as well as the more heavily pretreated subsets. Uh, this is the CANDER study, and this is looking at the combination of carfilzomib, daratumumab, and DEX compared to carfilzomib and DEX alone. And you can see that the median PFS was substantially improved in the CAR-DARA arm versus uh, CAR-DEX alone. And you can see that the benefit was maintained across almost all subsets. So including high-risk cytogenetics, you're seeing a substantial benefit with the combination of DARA and carfilzomib. And I always think the high-risk subset is a very important one to look at because if patients in high, with high-risk cytogenetics are benefiting, then likely the standard risk will as well. This is a combination of DARA-POMDEX versus POMDEX, the Apollo study, 
And you can see that the median PFS with the triplet was 12.4 months versus 6.9 with the doublet with a significant p-value and hazard ratio of 0.63. And specifically, patients who were refractory to lenalidomide, the median PFS was still uh, longer in the triplet versus doublet, 9.9 versus 6.5 months. Now we'll switch gears to esotuximab. Uh, this is another CD38 monoclonal antibody. And it, the IKEMA study combined ESA-CARDEX compared to CARDEX alone. There were approximately 300 patients enrolled who had one to three prior lines of therapy. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one fashion to ESA-CARDEX versus CARDEX and treated until progression of disease or unacceptable toxicity. PFS was the primary endpoint. So you can see that in patients who had one to three prior lines with a median of two prior lines and 93% were exposed to prior PI, 76% prior lens, 20% refractory to IMID and PI, there was a significantly improved median PFS with ESA-CARDEX compared to CARDEX alone with a hazard ratio of 0.53. The median was not reached for 19.15 months. In the subgroup analysis of high-risk patients, uh, and this was a pre-specified exploratory and post-hoc analysis, 50% cutoff uh, for deletion 17P, 30% cutoff for T414, 30% cutoff for T1416, and um, for chromosome 1Q21, a gain was defined as three or more copies with the cutoff of 30%. And amplification was defined as four or more copies with a cutoff of 30%. And you can see that in this high-risk cohort, there was, a, again, a significant benefit in the high-risk subgroup. The PFS subgroup was maintained. So uh, specifically, I uh, am looking at the gain of 1Q21 patients where ESA-CARDEX performed better than CARDEX in terms of median PFS. Another subgroup that was examined was patients with renal impairment. So the PFS benefit was maintained in patients with and without renal impairment. Specifically in those who did have renal impairment, the median PFS for ESA-CARDEX was 13.4 months, was not reached versus 13.4 months with CARDEX. And now let's look at depth of response. So overall response rate was similar. But when you look more carefully at rates of CR or even VGPR better, you have an improvement with the ESA-CARDEX compared to cardex arm. And when we examine MRD negativity, 10 to the minus 5 by NGS, there was a significant improvement in MRD negativity rate with patients receiving ESA-CARDEX versus CARDEX alone. The ICARIA study was a phase three study examining the combination of ESA-POMDEX versus POMDEX alone in patients with relapsed myeloma who had two or more prior lines of therapy. They had to have a prior IMID or lenalidomide rather and a proteasome inhibitor. Primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So you can see that with a prolonged follow-up, ESA-POMDEX continues to improve the median PFS. The median was 11.1 months compared to 5.8 months with POMDEX alone and a hazard ratio of 0 
the effect of subsequent daratumumab therapy was examined in patients who had treatment on the ICARIUS study. So patients who were progressing on ESAPONDEX had a, a shorter median PFS with a daratumumab-based regimen compared to patients who were progressing on POMDEX. Now, in terms of overall response rate, patients who were already ESA exposed had a shorter, had a reduced overall response rate with daratumumab. So 14.3% of those patients responded to monotherapy with daratumumab. However, when you combine dara with a PI image or alkylating agent, that response rate doubled. So you can still achieve a response with daratumumab in patients progressing on ESAPONDEX when you combine the daratumumab with another agent. I think that's an interesting uh, thing to know. So regarding antibodies in general, these regimens in combination with IMIDs or proteasome inhibitors have been very well tolerated. We do need to watch for hypogammaglobulinemia. We do use prophylactic IV, IV immunoglobulin in a subset of patients, particularly in those who have three or more antibiotic requiring infections a year or in anyone who's had a hospitalization or life-threatening uh, bacterial or viral infection. Infections need to be treated proactively. The use of subcutaneous DARA has reduced severe infusion-related reactions and share time. Cytopenias, uh, we need to watch. They occur more commonly in combination with pomalidomide compared to with proteasome inhibitor backbone, and particularly in the first two or even three months of therapy. We'll talk briefly about some small molecule inhibitors and drugs with novel mechanism of actions that are evaluated in the relapse setting. So the Bellini study examines the combination of venetoclax, bortezomib-dex versus bortezomib-dex, you can see that in the T1114 positive patients, we see a higher response rate in the venetoplax group. And high BCL2 expression also is a biomarker for response with venetoclax. So the combination of venetoclax, bortezomib-dex compared to bortezomib-dex did improve progression-free survival. However, when we look at overall survival, there's a trend toward improvement with placebo. There, it is not statistically significant, and this may be attributed to increased rates of infection with the venetoclax arm. When using venetoclax, we have to remember to use medication or antimicrobial prophylaxis so that we can be proactive and perhaps prevent venetoclax-related infections. The Boston study examined the combination of selenexor, bortezomib, and dex with bortezomib and dex in patients with relapse refractory myeloma. This was risk, the, the treatment arms were stratified by prior PI therapies, number of anti-myeloma regimen, one versus more than one, and revised ISS stage at entry. And you can see that the combination of selenexor, bortezomib, dex gave uh, significantly improved overall response rate compared to bortezomib and dex alone. Uh, in particular, we have higher rate of CR, stringent CR, and negative MRD was seen uh, almost equally in both arms. 
PFS was better in patients who had the triplet compared to the doublet. The median PFS, 13.9 months compared to 9.46 months with a p-value of 0.0075 and a hazard ratio of 0.7. There are many recent phase three trials in relapse refractory myeloma that have a control arm of a doublet versus an experimental arm of a triplet. And you can see that across all of these trials, uh, we see an improvement in the triplet compared to the doublet. These trials are all in earlier relapses. And uh, there's many combinations uh, with proteasome inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies, as well as IMIDs and monoclonal antibodies supporting the triplets. So some take-home thoughts regarding antibody platforms in early relapse. Antibodies used in combination with IMIDs and or PIs have shown deep remissions and durable responses in patients who have not been exposed to prior CD38 antibodies. These selection of triplets are based on both both host and disease-related factors. So we take into account our patient's history of therapies, how quickly their disease is relapsing, prior therapies to which they're refractory, comorbidities, and we also look at the biology of the disease. In patients who have progressed on lenalidomide-based regimens, prior anti-CD38 antibodies in combination with carfilzomib have shown high response rates and impressive progression-free survivals. In addition, when we use CD38 therapies on patients who have progressed on prior CD38 therapy, monotherapy has not demonstrated durable responses, but perhaps if we use these antibodies in combination with other agents, we have the potential of demonstrating some response. In the situation where we have exhausted our monoclonal antibodies, we have other alternatives, including Venetoplax, Semlinexor, and other novel therapies are certainly in development. Thank you, Dr. Viran, for that excellent presentation. And if you could give us your case presentation again. So we'll refresh. This is a 76-year-old gentleman who is relapsing early, 15 months after transplant, uh, while on lenalidomide maintenance with lytic disease and high-risk features of 1Q21 and um, 13Q deletion. And we have to take into consideration that he does have some peripheral neuropathy and uh, wants to minimize his visits. So this is the patient who has not yet received anti-CD38 antibody therapy. I would certainly consider an anti-CD38 as the backbone for his first regimen, especially because uh, something like daratumumab will eventually become a monthly injection. So this is both effective and convenient for long-term. Um, support. This is a treatment that's supported by multiple phase three trials. Um, we can consider using it with pomalidomide um, in this gentleman who's already refractory to lenalidomide. So darapomdex would be an excellent option. Um, additionally, we could consider daracardex. Does have a slightly better signal and high risk, but this gentleman is already uh, above the age of 75 with um, a cardiac comorbidity, recent, uh, relatively recent stent. So we have to uh, consider the cardiac toxicity when we uh, use this regimen. So I would certainly uh, propose a CD38 platform 
as the optimal choice for our patients. Thank we can hear Cindy's story. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. And let's hear Cindy's story. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Cindy Brown. I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma about seven and a half years ago. I had all kinds of testing which showed very, very extensive myeloma. About 80% of my bone marrow was sick, so I very quickly was started on the traditional RVD therapy and responded well to that. I think after a person has had some type of relapse after the initial RVD and transplant therapy, the antibody type drugs are um, a really, really good option because they're well tolerated, they're easy to receive, you know, they're given by an injection so it doesn't take an extended amount of time um, getting infusions and their success rate is really good and I would encourage patients if it's not being offered by their doctor to bring it up and, and ask those questions. Relapsing is, is really hard. It's, it's heartbreaking. Um, I think that most people, you know, you're, even though the research shows unfortunately that in most cases patients will relapse at some point, it's you're always hopeful that you're not going to be that one who does relapse and when you do it's 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 tough emotionally it's tough physically because it's like okay here we go again and additionally myeloma crowd and health tree is such a phenomenal resource because there's so much information on that site answering those questions and for people who may not be as comfortable asking questions of their doctors and advocating for themselves or just are kind of lost, the Myeloma Coaching Program is amazing because there are patients like myself who are coaches and there are caregivers and people on there that will talk to you one-on-one -on -one and help you figure out you know, what questions you need to ask and who you should talk to and, and resources you can use. I would encourage everybody who's newer on the journey to find, find a coach and use them as a resource to help them, you know, make sure that they're getting the best care possible. Truly a remarkable story of Cindy. And I would like to thank all our myeloma patients participating in this event and also, I think those stories remind us why we are here and what we are doing. And, and this is, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ajay Noka, who will talk about innovative antibody technologies and the challenge of heavily pretreated myeloma. Ajay, please go ahead. Thanks, Dr. Lenz, for having me. And over the next 20 minutes, I'll be talking about the innovative antibody technologies and what are the challenges that we face today. So I'll start with providing the lay of the land. What you see on the left side is our experience among patients that are triple refractory. That means patients that are refractory to immunomodulatory agents, proteasome inhibitors, and monoclonal antibodies. And I'm not proud of these numbers. The overall survival among these patients who are triple refractory is less than a year. You look at, this was not too long ago. This was all within the last three years. 
Towards the right side, the same findings were corroborated in a, in a multi-institute study with 275 patients, clearly showing the exact same findings that we found. Overall survival among all patients is less than a year. What, what, what you can see here is the pentarefractory patients, which means patients who, who progressed on two different lines of uh, two different images, two different PIs, and a CD38 monoclonal antibody. Their overall survival is less than six months. So there's clearly a need for newer antibodies, newer treatments for these patients with poor prognosis. So I'll start with the clinical case of Mark, who's a 74-year-old gentleman, came to the clinic ambulating with a cane. So he has a performance status of a KPS of 60. His myeloma story dates back to four years ago when he presented with an ISS stage 3 disease and received the state-of-art standard-of-care regimen with lenalidomide, botasm, dexamethasone, went for an, for an early transplant in first remission, and post-transplant, he received lenalidomide as maintenance. Unfortunately, 18 months later, he started having evidence of progression. Based on the discussion, a shared decision-making with the patient, we initiated carfilzomib and dexamethasone for, for Mark. And the, the benefit, even though he tolerated the drugs very well, the benefit was not too long. It was around 10 months of benefit that we got, and he started progressing at this time and was started on an antibody-based regimen, just like how we heard from Dr. Brennan. The daratumumab, formalidomide, and dexamethasone was the next line of treatment, and he attained a stringent-complete response, raising my hopes that he would stay in remission for a much longer period. Unfortunately, eight months later, he started progressing. Now he has a biochemical progression. He has a measurable disease with a paraprotein of 0.72 gram per deciliter, free light change for slightly over 130 milligram per liter. And towards the right panel that you see are the comorbidities of Mark. Mark is hypertensive, diabetic. He has a BMI of greater than 35, baseline chronic kidney disease with a CKD stage 3. He has a grade 2 peripheral neuropathy more likely from the well care that, you got, that he got as the initial induction therapy. So now, his labs show that he's anemic. His hemoglobin was 9.4. As expected, his baseline creatinine was between 1.4 and 1.5. He had a bone marrow biopsy showing that he had 20% plasma cells and has a hyperdiploid karyotype. Now, with all this history of taking the comorbidities, putting all the principles that Dr. Beren alluded to before, what treatment would you choose as the next step for this patient? Clinical trial with the bispecific antibodies, BCMA-targeted antibody drug conjugate, which is belantamab, BCMA-targeted CAR-T, or re-exposure to a doublet like carfilzomib or dexamethasone. We'll come back to this case, but let's start with the data that is supporting all the options that you have. So belantamab mafditin is an antibody drug conjugate that was approved by the FDA for, for relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients that have received four prior lines of therapy or have already been exposed or refracted to an immunomodulatory agent, PI, as well as a CD38 monoclonal antibody. EMA also had approval, except that the, the approval did not include the prior lines of therapy. So this approval was based on the overall response rate that you could see towards the right panel, 
the overall response rate is 31%. And these responses are, are very deep. Like as you can see, the VGPR rates are significantly higher at doses of 2.5 milligram per kilogram that, that were shown in the DREAM2 trial. So safety data was, was very adequate with longer follow-up, and this led to the approval of the drug in, for relapsed refractory myeloma patients. So what is more interesting is, as you saw, one in three people had a good response with a good overall response rates, and the duration of response in these responders is significantly longer. So median duration of response is close to 12 months among these patients. So looking at these specific patients by the lines of therapy, this is a heavily pretreated patient population. The median line trial lines of therapy was seven among all the patients on DREAM2 trial. So if you split them by patients who were less refractory with three to six prior lines of therapy versus more than seven prior lines of therapy, as anticipated or as expected and as seen in the other trials, your response rates are much higher for patients who had received lesser prior lines of therapy, which led to the evaluation of belantamab as earlier line of therapy in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone. DREAM6 trial evaluated patients who have received more than one prior lens of therapy and sensitive to bortezomib, and these patients received belantamab at 2.5 milligram per kilogram given intravenously every three weeks, along with bortezomib and dexamethasone, and these patients had a median of three prior lines of therapy. And as you can see on the right panel, these response rates were 78%, similar to what you had seen in, in the space with other combinations. The, if you can see this, close to 70% of these patients achieved greater than a VGPR response rate. So moving to the other combinations in this space, Algonquin is a trial that was a dose-winding phase one trial led by Suzanne Trudell, looking at the evaluation of the dose of belantamab in combination with pomalidomide. Patients that received more than one prior lines of therapy that are refractory to lenalidomide, either PI exposed or refractory, has a performance status of less than two and progress within 60 days with patients with mild and moderate renal impairment were permitted on the trial, patients with grade two cytopenia were permitted on the trial. And as you can see, the overall response rates were 88% with this combination. And these patients received a prior, like three prior lines of therapy as well. If you look at the subsets of patients that we alluded to before, the image PI refractory subset, which included 24 of the uh, 34 patients, had an overall response rate of 92% with VGPR rates of 75%. And if you look at this specific subset, which we talked about before, the image PI data refractory patients, which accounted for a third of these subjects, had an overall response rate of 100%, with VGPR rate of 72%. And as expected, these patients don't tend to remain in remission for the longest period of time, and their PFS was 11.1 months. The other subsets, the, the follow-up has not been adequate yet. There's a poster that will be presented on Monday, post number 1653, looking at the Algonquin trial. Please go visit on Monday evening. So... so the ADCs come with a very unique toxicity profile. It has corneal toxicity as one of the major concerns, 
So, but if you look closely, we can talk how, how to mitigate these toxicities so that we can continue to deliver the drug uninterruptedly and at the same time get the benefit that we saw with, with these drugs in a third of the patients. So, belantamab at 2.5 milligram per kilogram in the DREAM2 trial had a keratopathy or a micro or a microcystopathy like changes seen in 72% of these patients. Patients can have keratopathy without any symptoms. So if you look at the symptoms, bloody vision, dry eyes, or, or best corrective visual acuity loss of more than two, uh, two lines is seen in 56% of these patients. And if you look closely, if it, the best corrective visual acuity changed to 20 over 50 in 18% of the patients, and majority of these, patients, majority of these corneal defects or corneal toxicities are reversible. There is not even a single patient that lost vision because of the drug. So having a clear plan of how to approach this drug, how to give this drug in, a, in the safest possible way is the way to, to have this drug given to the patients. Baseline eye exam should include a slit lamp exam, visual acuity, and, and prior to every dose, there is an ophthalmology visit that needed to happen and prior to the first dose, second dose, and using the preservative-free lubricant drops at least four times daily, starting with the first infusion until the end of the treatment is essential. There, are, there have been a trial that was initially done looking at the benefit of using the steroid eye drops. It did not show any benefit as well. So why do we need those exams? So if you look at the grading of the toxicities, grading of these corneal toxicities, the the modifications that you can make based on these toxicities would help us to minimize the toxicities. So grade one includes mild superficial keratopathy, change in the best corrected visual acuity, a decline from the baseline up to first line on the Snellens. With a grade one toxicity, you don't need any dose modifications, continue with the treatment at the current dose. If you look at the grade two, the corneal exam findings may include moderate superficial keratopathy. There's a change in the best corrected visual acuity, a decline from the baseline of the second and third lines of the Snellen visual charts, and, worse, and no worse than 20 over 200. When there is a grade 2 toxicity, holding belantamab until improvement in both the corneal exams, exam findings and change in the BCVA to grade 1 or better and resuming at the same dose is recommended. These are slightly different for grade 3 and grade 4 toxicities. If you look at the grade 3 toxicity, which includes severe superficial keratopathy and change in the BCVA, a decline from baseline to three lines on the Snellen's visual acuity and not worse than 20 or 200. In such case, withholding Balamaf until improvement in both the corneal exam findings and change in BCVA to grade 1 or better and resuming at a dose level below what is given. For grade 4 toxicities where there is a corneal epithelial defect or the Snellen's visual acuity is worse than 20 or 200, considering permanent discontinuation is an absolute uh, indicator, it, it is reasonable alternative. If, you, if patient is responding very well, delaying the dose to a later time when all the toxicities resolve and reducing at a, at a reduced dose and initiating at a reduced dose is an alternative as well. So 
clear strategy, a clear plan, a clear communication with an oncologist, an ophthalmologist, and a patient is really necessary for giving this drug in the most safest way possible. Patients should have increased vigilance for potential treatment-related ocular toxicities and notifying the providers as early as possible so that appropriate dose modifications are made. So the RAMS program, which is a risk mitigation program implemented by the FDA, requires the patient assessments co-managed by the eye specialists and oncologists. And this is a steep learning curve. It took us almost four or five months for us to get used to working with an ophthalmologist who I never had in my career to work with an ophthalmologist. But now, when there's a need and it is benefiting, benefiting a patient, absolutely we do do this uh, collaboration. And during the ophthalmologic exam, grading of the ocular toxicity, so, uh, grading of the ocular toxicity should be conducted to allow the oncologist to determine the most appropriate dosing, dosing schedule, as I talked about earlier. So initial exam is intended to assess the patient's baseline ocular health. And again, as we talked about, the key is to state up on the toxicities so that it would allow for us to provide the adequate management. So take-home message, it's an off-the-shelf BCMA-targeted option. That's the only, only FDA-approved FDA off-the-target option available at this time. It can be given every three weeks with minimal toxicities. I would say the ocular toxicities are the ones that need a closer vigilance, and these can be managed appropriately as long as there is clear vigilance from all the three parties that are involved in here. So if infusion reactions may occur, there is no pre-medications are recommended unless treatment emergent events happen. So shifting gears to the bispecific antibodies. So bispecific antibodies have a dual antigen specificity, as Dr. Lance alluded to before, using a antigen that is uh, CD3 with a target antigen that is expressed by the tumor, and in, in this case it is BCMA, and redirecting the, the T cells towards the lysis of the myeloma cells. So these are two different concepts, two different technologies that are, that are in place, the bispecific T cell engagers as a, as a dual body technology, and with the sole goal of redirecting the T cells to help with the lysis of the myeloma cell. Majestic 1 is, has evaluated teclistumab, which is a BCMA targeting and CD3 targeting bispecific IG4 antibody. And this has been evaluated in this phase 1 and phase 2 trial in patients greater than age 18 with measurable disease exposed to a PI, imidin, and CD38 antibody were allowed to enter the study. A total of 159 patients were enrolled in this study in the phase two portion and with an overall response rate of close to 65% with greater than VGPR response rates of 60%. As you can see on the right side, the recommended, uh, the recommended phase two dosing among 26 patients, the swimmer plots clearly show that these are long durable remissions that continue to occur. And there is an oral presentation with the updated results with, by Dr. Moreau. On Monday evening, please don't miss these presentations. Elranatumab, this is the other BCMA-directed, BCMA and CD3-directed monoclonal antibody um, with bispecific T-cell engager. This is presented at ASCO of 2021 among 30 patients 
the response rates are similar to what you saw with the techlist map. Overall response rate is close to 70%. CRR stringent complete response rates were seen in close to 30% of these patients. One of these cohorts had allowed for uh, for patients who had received a prior BCMA-directed therapy like an ADC. And among these four patients, three of them responded, two with a VGPR and one with a stringent complete response that cohort is continuing to enroll. So as you see, with this dose finding with escalation, they went all, all the way from 80 microgram per kilogram to 1,000 microgram per kilogram. And the, and the efficacy started to be seen around 215 microgram per kilogram. But the, the 1,000 microgram per kilogram is the, is, the, is the one that is expanding at this point. So coming back to Mark, Mark has a lot of comorbidities. And he's image refractory, PI refractory, as well as CD38 monoclonal antibody refractory. So his BCMNA, given the existing options out there, BCMA therapy is logical given the refractory status. The question is, which one? So what are the factors that help decide between the, the CAR-Ts and the ADC modalities? So Mark is 74, has a poor performance status, has a multiple comorbidities, in my opinion, may not be the right candidate for CAR. So we started Mark on Belantamab, and we gave a really good consideration to the bites that are available as clinical trial, but he would not be eligible for, the, for, for those. So Mark received Belantamab and received a rapid response since August of 2021 and clearly was shown to have a, a continuing benefit with ongoing treatment. He had grade 2 ocular toxicities, and other than that, he tolerated the treatment well. Going on with the take-home messages for the BCMA antibody therapies, there are several novel innovative antibody technologies that are approved and are in development for relapse refractory multiple myeloma. What I showed you was a glimpse of a, the tip of the iceberg. There are several, several ongoing trials that are existing out there. There are multiple factors, patient-related, disease-related, prior therapies. A lot of other factors needed to be considered prior to choosing a regimen for relapse refractory multiple myeloma. So Belantamab is an approved off-the-shelf agent, actively shown in heavily refractory patients. There is a concern for the ocular toxicities, but with co-management with the patient, co-management with the ophthalmologist and the oncologist, these toxicities can be downgraded significantly and can allow for us to utilize these treatments with minimal toxicities. Bi-specific targeting BCMAs are rapidly emerging. By next dash, when we talk about this, it could be a completely different answer. So this is Let's Hear Vicky's Story. My name is Vicki Jones. I am kind of an old hand at myeloma. I was diagnosed in June of 2004. I had IgA lambda, and my IgA was about 3,600. My bone marrow biopsy showed 86% plasma cells. So I didn't have smoldering, I didn't have MGUS, I had myeloma. And we started treatment right away with some, something called VAD, which was the standard of care back then. That's pretty much what we did for 17 years. Every regimen that we tried worked for me, worked quickly, but 
nothing ever put me into a complete remission. That was okay. We had the myeloma under control and my quality of life was great. So I went to my doctor with that in mind, and it turned out his first choice was Bellamaf. He was excited about it. He had used it on, he said, a dozen patients, and he was having great results. That's what he wanted me to do. Well, I love my doctor. I respect my doctor. I did what my doctor said. Five weeks or six weeks later, after my second Bellamaf treatment, we did another bone marrow biopsy. My doctor asked the pathologist to expedite the results, and he called me a couple of days later, and then he texted me this, complete eradication of neoplastic plasma cells. Complete eradication. I couldn't believe it. I went from 80% to none in two treatments. Okay, I guess maybe it was a good choice. If you can find somebody to talk to who's been through it, someone to ask questions of, compare notes with. It makes all the difference in the world. And that's why I'm a myeloma coach. Talk to coaches, look at your options. There are a lot of choices out there. You can do this. Wow, what a story. Um, and 20 years of multiple myeloma, I think that speaks for itself. And we want to use the last final eight minutes to answer some questions. And let me start with um, Ajay. Ajay, two questions for you concerning um, Blenrep. Number one is, do you really think you, you can use it in pre clinical practice? Are the side effects uh, manageable? I mean, I treated some patients and both had good responses, but both had to stop um, due to toxicity. That's number one. And number two, as a single agent, the response rate is not that high. What do you think? Um, would there be another partner, you know, that we could combine? Blend rapid studies are ongoing. Maybe you can comment on this too. Absolutely. Those, those are really practical issues that happen. So number one, why Balamath? We've seen the benefit among patients that are triple refractory. One in three people will respond, but these responses are durable. These responses last beyond what is expected in terms of the life expectancy at that time. So now, we never wavered away from a toxicity in all of myeloma treatments. So we dealt with the toxicity with neuropathy, with bortezomib. We dealt with the toxicity with heart failure from carfilzomib. So... How to manage this toxicity is how I view this. So it was a steep learning curve for us. Like the initial time, we were just thinking how to manage this. I never spoke to an ophthalmologist in you know, my oncology career. Now I had to make new friends 
And now they accommodate the patient schedule in such a way because this is given once a three once a three week in, uh, infusion, and if I'm bringing the patient twice, once to see the ophthalmologist and once to see myself, it is defeating the purpose. So we try to manage them in a way that the patient sees the ophthalmologist in first, comes with the grading and the in the evaluation comes to us so that I do have the exam ready, and. What I really want to highlight is if we are stopping because of a toxicity, the responses still continue to, to maintain. So that was what we had seen in our experience. That's what we had seen in, in experiences at other centers as well. But working to modify those dosings, and this is dose-dependent, going down, down a dose is absolutely fine and, and, and can be given with lesser toxicity. So where I see the future is the combination treatments. Since the ocular toxicity is a dose dependent, if we can go for a lesser dose of belantamab in combination with a partner, we've evaluated in combination with botesmib in the early relapse setting. We've evaluated in combination with thomalidomide. There is data that is just slowly flowing out that is showing that these are feasible and able to give us good responses. And in the future, I'm seeing these in combination treatments at a lesser dose so that can mitigate the toxicities. And I completely agree. I treated patients and initially it's a little bit cumbersome to build up relations with an ophthalmologist. But once you have that, I actually like to give Blendrap because it's relatively easy to give as an outpatient. There's no fear of CRS, etc. So uh, it has some benefits. Um, I have a question for Dr. Biran. I hope she's still with us. Noah, can you hear us? I am here, yes. Okay, cool. Hi. Cool. Two, two questions for you. Number one, and I think we have a couple more minutes of um, time. So would you ever treat frail patients with a doublet? And then number two, what about would you generally avoid carfilzomib when patients have cardiac comorbidities? So number one, doublets. And then number two, what about carfilzomib with cardiac comorbidities? So number one, I think it depends on your goal. And if you have a low-risk patient who's um, who's relapsing on non, in, no maintenance, has had no maintenance therapy, uh, older patients, certainly you can justify giving, you know, pomalidomide and dexamethasone. But we've seen in many studies, even in frail patients, that they do tolerate triplets. Um, and I would really advocate trying to add that triplet. And the monoclonal antibodies really help us to give our uh, frail patients triplet therapy. Darylenolidomide and DEX is very uh, well tolerated in my experience, even in frail patients. Um, and sometimes what we end up doing is pushing it as much as possible and maybe dropping the imid later in the disease, you know, later in cyclotherapy or dose reducing the imid because I find that the imids can be more difficult to tolerate in frail patients on a chronic basis compared to the monoclonal antibodies. So uh, I would recommend, even in frail patients, trying to to use triplet-based therapy. And then the second question was the use of carfilzomib. So we know in heart in patients with cardiac comorbidities. So we know that the rate of cardiac or shortness of breath in general due to carfilzomib is about three percent. Can be higher in patients that have risk factors. So what are the risk factors? Age over seventy-five, uncontrolled hypertension you know, recent MI and when and what I uh, interpret that to be is in the last six months, you know, severe cardiac event. If you reduce the hydration when you administer the carfilzomib, maybe 
the purpose of the hydration is really to prevent tumor lysis. So if you have a patient who has not a high burden of disease, you could potentially eliminate the hydration. Maybe just give 250 cc's of IV fluid, the first one or two infusions, and then eliminate it altogether, monitor carefully for tumor lysis. And just by doing that, you can significantly reduce the risk of cardiac events with carfilzomib. In addition, I always do a baseline echocardiogram. And then if there's any concern for shortness of breath, uncontrolled hypertension, I repeat that echocardiogram and uh, specifically look for ejection fraction and RVSP because you don't want to miss uh, some subtle pulmonary hypertension in these patients. Excellent. Thank you. Um, two more minutes. Uh, maybe we can squeeze in a couple more questions. I tried to answer a few questions briefly. Uh, any scenario where you would use IV over subcutaneous dera? Um, I, in very few patients, I switched from, um, sub-Q to IV, but only patients who have absolutely no body fat and have painful injection sites. And it was more or less when the patient requests that otherwise subcutaneous is kind of, you know, my preferred choice, you know, of application. Um, then there was another question, which I think is uh, really important. Is there any comparison VRD versus DVD uh, in newly diagnosed patients? I can only speak for VRD versus RVD. Um, there is large cooperative groups, especially SWOP, is working on implementing such a trial. I think those trials are very important really to compare head-to-head -head, uh, data from the Maya trial versus the VRD data we have. So data might come not next year, but hopefully in the next couple of years. Um, one question for my good friend, Ajay. Ajay, the data from Cassiopeia showed that if you receive DARA during induction or during maintenance or all the time, it's principle the same. What does it mean for our patients? If somebody started on VTD, does, should those patients receive DARA for the maintenance? What do you think? First you and then Noah. You cannot escape, even if you're on and sick. I'm viewed this as a, I would view this very differently in, in terms of my, my, my take on it. What it is showing is VTD is a really good induction, but still you can maximize those responses by adding data upfront. If somebody did not receive it upfront, you can receive it as a maintenance. But what, it, what I clearly take home from this is, Data VTD, whether given up front or as a maintenance, is better than VTD. Noah? Yeah, and I would, I would use this question to emphasize, you know, how we design clinical trials because it's difficult to interpret um, the, the isolated role of daratumumab in these studies. I think that when you look at the overall picture, it's the use of daratumumab that makes a difference and it matters less You know, if you use it in the upfront setting or later on as maintenance or even at first progression, I'm not sure it would make a big difference if you use it at first progression. Um, and I think that we need to look more carefully at our endpoints when we design clinical trials. Then I also would use this as an opportunity to look at, uh, you know, the Griffin trial and other phase two studies that are using monoclonal antibodies, specifically DARA in the induction uh, setting and maybe Before we all adapt that, uh, need to look more carefully at whether or not it's the DARA at induction or DARA in general that's giving us, uh, you know, our, our MRD negativity, depth of response and prolonged remission durations. Absolutely. Um, that was a great comment. And with this, I think we are at the end of our session. I would like to thank my co-chairs, uh, Dr. Noka and Dr. Biran, uh, and also the organizers for setting up this meeting. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and Health Tree Foundation. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HYJ860. This educational activity is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Sanofi Genzyme.